New York. This is Democracy Now. It was horrifying. They targeted the house with five or six rockets. There were body parts on the ground. It was horrifying. In Gaza, at least 44 Palestinians, about a third of them children, have been killed in three days of an Israeli military bombardment before a ceasefire began Sunday. We'll go to Gaza for the latest. Then to the historic presidential inauguration in Colombia of former guerrilla fighter Gustavo Petro. I swore to God and promised to the people to faithfully comply with the Constitution and the laws of Colombia. President Gustavo Petro ushers in a new political era with Francia Marquez Mina, the first Afro-Colombian woman to be elected vice president. We'll go to Bogota to speak with Simone Mejia, the founding member of the Grammy Award-winning Colombian band Bomba Estéreo, about a new project that centers Afro-Colombians who've long faced violence and repression. It brings hope. Hope to the people, to the underrepresented people of the periphery of Colombia, who are the ones that voted for Gustavo Petro, the Afro communities, the indigenous communities, the campesinos, the, the farmers, the poor people around the country that have been undertaking for years and years. So it's, it's a, a, a good time for change. There's hope in the air. Then CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Conference, ended in Texas with a speech by former President Trump after kicking off with the far-right Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban, who just won a fourth term in office. Republicans are playing a totally different game now in which you win or lose elections before anybody ever casts a vote because you've set up a system designed to produce a certain result no matter what the votes say. That's how Orban wins, and that's what we're moving into. We'll speak with Princeton University professor Kim Lane Shepley. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. In Gaza, at least 44 Palestinians, including 15 children, have been killed in three days of an Israeli military bombardment before a ceasefire began late Sunday. At least 350 Palestinians were wounded. Palestinians accused the Israeli government of launching the attack in an effort to build political support ahead of November's Israeli elections. Palestinian children who survived the Israeli assault describe horrifying situations. This is a nine-year-old girl named Lin Matar, who was pulled from the rubble. I was at my grandfather's house when suddenly the rubble started to fall on us, and we started screaming and the neighbors came to rescue us. We don't want to keep going through this. Every year there are strikes, killings of children and injuries. I am happy that I am alive because I always had a dream to fulfill, which is to become a doctor and help people in such times, to help them because I have been through many problems like this. Israel defended the bombardment of Gaza saying it was a preemptive operation targeting militants with the group Islamic Jihad. Two senior Islamic Jihad commanders were killed in the attack. During the bombardment, Israel also cut off fuel to Gaza, leading to blackouts across the region. We'll go to Gaza after headlines. 
The Senate's passed a sweeping $739 billion bill to address the climate crisis, reduce drug costs, and establish a 15 percent minimum tax for large corporations. Vice President Kamala Harris cast the deciding vote Sunday after every Republican in the Senate voted no. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer described the legislation as the boldest climate package in U.S. history. The Senate has now passed the most significant bill to fight the climate crisis ever. And it's going to make a difference to my grandkids. The world will be a better place for my grandchildren because of what we did today. And that makes me feel very, very good. Many climate groups praised the Senate for taking action, but said far bolder steps are needed to address the climate emergency. Varshini Prakash, the founder of the Sunrise Movement, tweeted, This isn't the bill my generation deserves, but it's the one we can get. It must pass to give us a fighting chance at a livable world. She went on to write, quote, Youth leaders to Congress pass this bill, then get back to work. The Senate bill aims to cut U.S. carbon emissions by 40 percent by the end of this decade, but it also includes controversial provisions added to win support from West Virginia's Joe Manchin and Arizona Senator Kirsten Sinema. At Manchin's request, the bill makes it easier for the pipeline industry to win approval of new projects, including the proposed Mountain Valley Pipeline in West Virginia. The bill could also lead to more drilling on public lands and waters and expand tax credit for fossil, coal and gas-burning plants. The Center for Biological Diversities described the bill as a, quote, climate suicide pact. Meanwhile, the insistence of Senator Sinema, Democrats agreed to drop a proposal to raise taxes on private equity and hedge fund firms. The bill will also allow Medicare to begin negotiating for some prescription drugs, which could lower prices for millions. But during negotiations over the bill, Senate Republicans blocked an effort to place a $35 monthly cap on insulin for most Americans. History was made in Colombia Sunday when Gustavo Petro, the former guerrilla, was sworn in as Colombia's first president, leftist president. Francia Marquez Mina, who also made history, becoming Colombia's first Afro-Colombian vice president. Petro is a former M-19 guerrilla who went on to serve as a senator and mayor of the nation's capital, Bogota. Marquez is a longtime Afro-Colombian environmental activist, land and water defender. In 2018, she won the Goldman Environmental Prize during his inaugural address. President Petro vowed to fight inequality and climate change and to push for Peace. He also condemned the U.S.-led war on drugs. It is time for a new international convention that accepts that the war on drugs has completely failed, that it has killed a million Latin Americans, many of them Colombians, during the last 40 years, and that it leaves 70,000 North Americans dead by overdose each year from drugs that are not produced in Latin America. The war on drugs strengthened mafias and weakened states. Supporters of Gustavo Petro and Francia Marquez celebrated what they saw as a new beginning for Colombia, which has been ruled by the elite and right-wing forces for generations. This is Manuel Ponton speaking in Bogota. It is the beginning of democracy in Colombia because it is the first time there will be a government of popular origin. It is the first time that people feel happy about the election of a president, and for the first time we feel that there is a real transition towards guaranteeing citizens' rights. 
We'll have more on Colombia later in the broadcast. Tensions remain high in the Taiwan Strait, where China has extended its largest-ever military drills in the region following last week's visit to Taiwan by U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. On Sunday, China ended live-fire exercises, but it's continuing to carry out drills simulating anti-submarine attacks and sea raids. In addition, China suspended talks with the United States on a number of issues, including the climate crisis, anti-drug efforts and military relations, due to what called Pelosi's, quote, egregious provocations. The International Atomic Energy Agency's warning of a potential nuclear disaster at Zaporizhia, Europe's largest nuclear plant. Ukraine and Russia are accusing each other of attacking the nuclear site twice since Friday. Russia, which has occupied the plant since early March, said shelling by Ukrainian forces could have catastrophic consequences for Europe. Ukraine claims it was Russian forces that carried out missile strikes on the nuclear plant in an effort to disconnect it from Ukraine's electrical grid. Local residents called for an end to fighting near the site, which is home to six nuclear reactors and thousands of tons of highly radioactive materials. As city residents, we call on the Russian army and the Ukrainian armed forces to avoid open fighting in the area around Enrodor and within a 20-kilometer zone around the nuclear power plant. We're talking about the safety of the entire planet, not just about the safety of Ukraine, Belarus and Russia and nearby foreign countries. Back in the United States, Indiana's adopted a near-total ban on abortions, becoming the first state to approve new laws restricting reproductive rights since the U.S. Supreme Court struck down Roe v. Wade in June. On Friday, Indiana's Republican governor signed the abortion ban just minutes after the Republican-dominated Senate approved the legislation. It's set to take effect September 15th. The new law outlaws abortions at the moment of conception, with exceptions only in cases of rape, incest or medical emergency. Those providing abortion care face a $10,000 fine and up to six years in prison. The new law has drawn fire from Indiana's Chamber of Commerce and some of the state's largest employers. On Saturday, a spokesperson for Eli Lilly condemned the abortion ban and said in response the pharmaceutical giant is looking to expand its operations outside Indiana. In New Mexico, police say the shooting death of a South Asian immigrant in Albuquerque may be linked to the killings of three other Muslim men over the past nine months. The body of Naeem Hussein was found late Friday, just hours after he attended the funerals of Pakistani immigrants Mohammed Afzal Hussein and Aftab Hussein at the Islamic Center of New Mexico. Those two were killed last week in what police described as separate ambush-style shootings. A fourth South Asian Muslim man, Mohammed Ahmadi, was killed in November. Albuquerque Police Chief Harold Medina said Saturday the killings are likely related. Our city suffered another tragic loss overnight. Another young man who was part of the Muslim community was murdered. As with the pre previous three murders we mentioned on Thursday, uh, there's reason to believe this death is related to those shootings. Police haven't named any suspects, but on Sunday released images of a Volkswagen named as a vehicle of interest in the killings. On Twitter, President Biden called the killings horrific and said he's angered and saddened by them. 
A jury in Austin, Texas, Friday ordered far-right conspiracy theorist and InfoWars host Alex Jones to pay $45 million in compensatory damages to the parents of a Sandy Hook shooting victim. That's on top of more than $4 million in punitive damages Alex Jones was ordered to pay Thursday. For years, Jones spread conspiracy theories that the 2012 massacre in Newtown, Connecticut, was a government hoax and that the Sandy Hook victims' families were paid paid actors, resulting in online harassment and death threats for those families. On Saturday, U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres traveled to Hiroshima to mark 77 years since the United States dropped the world's first atomic bomb on that Japanese city. Guterres warned the risk of nuclear war is once again on the rise. Keep the horrors of Hiroshima in view of all times, recognizing there is only one solution to the nuclear threat, not to have nuclear weapons at and all. In climate news, California's Death Valley National Park received a year's worth of rainfall within just three hours last Friday, triggering flash floods that left about a thousand people temporarily stranded. A study by the U.N.'s Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change found such monsoon rain events are becoming more intense as a result of the climate crisis. Meanwhile, Iran has just recorded its hottest ever temperature in the month of August. On Friday, the southwestern city of Avaz hit 53 degrees Celsius, nearly 130 degrees Fahrenheit. The heat index was a staggering 142 degrees. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. In Gaza, at least 44 Palestinians, including 15 children, have been killed in three days of an Israeli military bombardment before a ceasefire began Sunday. At least 300 Palest 350 Palestinians were wounded. Palestinians accuse the Israeli government of launching the attack in an effort to build political support ahead of November's elections. Palestinian children who survived the Israeli assault describe horrifying scenes. This is a nine-year-old girl named Lin Matar who was pulled from the rubble. I was at my grandfather's house when suddenly the rubble started to fall on us, and we started screaming and the neighbors came to rescue us. We don't want to keep going through this. Every year there are strikes, killings of children and injuries. I am happy that I am alive because I always had a dream to fulfill, which is to become a doctor and help people in such times, to help them because I have been through many problems like this. Israel defended the bombardment of Gaza, saying it was a preemptive operation targeting militants with the group Islamic Jihad. Two senior Islamic Jihad commanders were killed in the attack. During the bombardment, Israel also cut off fuel to Gaza, leading to blackouts across the region. For more, we go to Gaza now to speak with Issam Adwan, Palestinian journalist, activist, researcher and new father. Uh, Issam, welcome back to Democracy Now! This ceasefire has been declared between Islam. Palestinian Islamic Jihad and Israel. Uh, can you talk about what has happened over the weekend? Thank you for hosting me. Uh, the scene is as usually terrifying for me as a new father of a two-month uh, of a two-month infant. 
as the journalists on the other part, that we are expecting everything from the Israeli side, even during the times of the ceasefire, because several instances before uh, indicated the violation of uh, the times of the ceasefire. The situation is horrifying. We have witnessed 44 Palestinians dying, including 15 children and six women, which represents half of the uh, casualties from the Palestinian side. Uh, there are no words to describe uh, the war crimes that have been committed, even with the claims of the Israeli uh, authority that they are targeting uh, PIJ's uh, senior members, uh, military senior members. Uh, this included, of course, targeting of residential building uh, buildings, uh, t- uh, killing uh, children and women, of course. Can you talk about what started this? So what started, just to correct you a little bit in your introduction that you mentioned that Israel cut fuel supplies to Gaza during the bombardment launched on Gaza of the operation, of course. But it happened four, four days before the escalation started when the Israeli administration decided to close uh, both borders, Kerem Shalom crossing and Eretz crossing, which they are the main crossings of the goods. Uh, that enters into Gaza, as well as the medical equipment and fuel as well. So when they decided to do that, uh, it came along with a provocative action uh, to detain uh, to detain Bassam al-Saadi, a senior member of the PIJs in the West Bank. Of course, with no response uh, by the political parties here in Gaza, they have added more violence uh, with the targeting of Tessir al-Jabari, a senior member of the PIJs in Gaza. Uh, uh, just to give you, uh, just to give you a, a, a sense of understanding about Tessir al-Jabari, he uh, had been more of a political person rather than being a military. Can you talk about the two Palestinian Islamic Jihad leaders who were killed and Israel's assertion that this was a preemptive attack on a possible attack against Israel? I, I don't know how to describe this properly, but what a preemptive attacks when included that the international laws, especially the uh, the international humanitarian laws, which prohibit targeting uh, buildings and areas which contains uh, hundreds of civilians. We're talking about Gaza. That uh, that is about 365 square kilometers, where two millions of people are put with a, uh, an intention policy to suffocate every norms of their existence. So how how you can possibly target senior members of the PI of the PRGs? And as as I stated before, they were more more of political persons rather than being military. So uh, significantly saying that they were not of a great threat to the Israeli administration. But following what has been happening inside, I mean the dispute happening inside the Israeli administration ahead of the pre-elections coming in the future, that uh, they are using the Palestinian uh, blood to promote a a campaign for certain individuals, especially uh, with the decreasing of the public support provided to Labid and Gantz in particular during the run of the uh, current government. Talk about the Israeli elections coming up in November and how you feel they weigh in here. It's actually the same. No matter who runs the Israeli government, it, it's always the same, with the same uh, policy to suffocate the Gaza Strip. We're talking about 15 years of blockade. This blockade killed every existence of people living in Gaza. And uh, there are there were several individuals running the Israeli government of different opinions and different views and different policies to deal with Gaza. But all the policies were met on a one goal that the Palestinians in Gaza do not deserve to live a normal life. 
this extent leads us to think that this change inside the Israeli government is just a, a, a minor change, just a, an apparent a, a change of who's leading the government, but, but the policy remains the same, either being a right wing or a left wing of, of Israelis. Now talk about the situation in Gaza. What does it mean to have the blackout and the number of casualties? What's the latest figure? We heard 44, uh, more than a third of them children, over 300 people injured. What's happening in the hospitals and how do you get these figures? Yes, with the as I mentioned, as I highlighted before, that the Israeli administration decided uh, implemented the closure of the Gaza Strip four days ahead of the operation starts in Gaza, uh, including a, a shortage, including blocking uh, the entrance of fuel, which is a, a which is Gaza mainly depends to run eight hours a day in the normal cases. With the shortage of the fuel, of course, it influenced it hugely influenced the capacity of the hospitals uh, to treat those injuries and also to to, to put those did uh, did people in the proper places uh, this this is uh, an indicator of a harsh uh, policy that that the, the Israeli administration has been dealing with Gaza and I don't know how to describe this in a, in a human side level because even to me personally I have experienced even a because the media, the media mainly focusing on Gaza whenever there are hundreds of people dying, hundreds of house bombed. But there are other times during these 15 years of blockade, people are dying because of the, of the poverty, people are dying because of the lack of hope, uh, lack of job opportunities. And that is what the media is neglecting to, uh, to, to cover on the situation of Gaza. Israel and the Palestinian Islamic Jihad agreed to a Cairo-mediated truce after three days of intense rocket attacks by Israeli forces. Now for sure we have reached a deal and there is an Egyptian commitment to release the prisoners Khalil Awada and Bassam Asadi as soon as possible from the Israeli jails. We announced ceasefire by 11.30 and we welcome the Egyptian efforts that were made to end this battle. That's an Islamic Jihad spokesperson, Issam Adwan. Can you talk about Egypt's involvement here and where you think this is going at this point? Yeah, as I said before, the ceasefire is never a safe solution for the people of Gaza because it 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 moves no tangible uh, improvements on the situation of Gaza of day by day and from a war to war especially the wars of 2008 12 14 and 2021 and this current one the infrastructure of Gaza is a hugely damaged the medical expertise and equipment are barely found so the the solution and the ceasefire that happened between BIJs and the the the, the Israeli side uh, there were three conditions uh, uh, three conditions revealed from the Egyptian mediation who uh, has been positively uh, in the process that first to release uh, Sheikh Bassam Saadi who was detained by the Israeli government in the in the previous days uh, of the escalation and uh, releasing the Palestinian prisoner Khalil Awawde, who has been in a hunger strike for more than for more than hundred days with an intentional uh, medical negligence to transfer him to medical care systems. Those uh, demands uh, they are indications of how much the situation is worsening day by day, 
And that's why the situation is not improving and people do not feel safety because Israel can determine a new uh, round of escalation uh, throughout assassinating a valuable target, as they claim, despite the fact that even the Israeli media outlets, they do not recognize this as a big of achievement, uh, the killing, I, and I mean by that, the killing of uh, uh, of Mansour and uh, Taysir al-Jabari. As I said before, they were more of a political uh, targets rather than being a military. So there is no significant achievement recognized, uh, but the Israeli government keeps bragging about it. Uh, Israel is saying that um, a number of the Palestinians killed were killed by the backfiring of Palestinian Islamic Jihad's own missiles. Your response, Assam Adwan? I believe the, 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 Israeli, uh, uh, the Israeli side used a, a video, uh, an anonymous video that shows nothing in the middle of the darkness. Uh, that that during the bombardment of Jabalia refugee camp said there were no uh, I would say clear indications that this is by the PIG's uh, misfire rocket. We have seen a huge bombardment launch on Gaza during the times between 9 p.m. to 12 p.m. During these times, more than more than. 12 targets were hit uh, on Jabalia camp, so there were no uh, uh, clear identification of whether this—but but let's take, let's take into consideration the explosive power. The Israeli side has always uh, undermined the, the potential, the rockets, uh, the rockets' potential of the Palestinian resistance, and now— they are recognizing that this missile, this rocket could kill seven individuals, seven Palestinians. I don't think this makes any sense because Israel exaggerate whenever uh, the exaggeration in, in its benefits and they undermine the potential of the Palestinians whenever they see it fit. You tweeted, the ceasefire is never a time to celebrate for Gazans, but rather a moment to mourn the deaths of innocent civilians killed by the Israeli warplane, to barely survive wondering, am I going to be next? Can we end uh, where we started? You're a new father. You have a two-month-old little girl named Sarah. Um, can you talk about what you see the future as in Gaza? It's really terrifying. During thinking about it all the years, even before Sarah came to my life, that I have a huge sense of guilt that I brought her into life. It's it's really pessimist to talk about it, but inside of me, it eats me alive that I brought a child into a situation that never rested. I was born in 1993. Uh, lived my entire life under the direct occupation. And for the past 15 years, uh, I have been denied the majority of my rights, including the right uh, to have a proper education outside or medication in cases of, uh, of illness. So imagining the situation uh, applies to my daughter, Sarah, is terrifying me the most because uh, being a journalist and being exposed to uh, being exposed, hugely exposed to uh, cases of uh, slaughtering children and women, uh, it keeps it keeps echoing in my mind. It keeps echoing in my heart, and it eats me from inside. That is it going to be next? And if it's not me, it could be my Sarah. Issam Adwan, we want to thank you for being with us, Palestinian journalist, activist, and researcher, joining us from Gaza. Next up, we go to Colombia, where the newly inaugurated President Gustavo Petro is ushering in a new political era with Francia Marquez Mina, the first Afro-Colombian woman to be elected vice president. Stay with us. Papa, ¿cuál es mi papá? Dale, dale.
Mamita by Bomba Estéreo and Simone Mejia, who we'll be hearing from in this next segment. Mamita just released. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. In Colombia Sunday, thousands celebrated the historic inauguration of President Gustavo Petro and Vice President Francia Marquez Mina, ushering in a new and hopeful political era in the South American nation after centuries of right-wing rule. Petro is the first leftist president to ever govern Colombia, while Francia Marquez is making history as the first Afro-Colombian woman elected as vice president. The pair won Colombia's presidential runoff election in June, with over half the vote. Petro is a former member of the guerrilla group M-19, former senator and mayor of Bogota, whose vow to fight inequality and poverty in Colombia, increase taxes on the wealthy, expand social programs, restore peace, and combat the climate crisis by halting new oil extraction and moving away from an economy long dependent on fossil fuel. He's also pledged free public university education, health care reform, and reestablishing relations with neighboring Venezuela. Gustavo Petro addressed support in Bogota Sunday during his inauguration, where he also denounced the brutal U.S.-backed so-called war on drugs. I will finally unite Colombia. We will unite between all of us, our beloved Colombia. We have to end the divisions that confront us as a people. I do not want two countries, just as I do not want two societies. I want a strong, just, and united Colombia. The challenges we face as a nation demand a period of unity and basic consensus. It is our responsibility. We call on all those who are armed to leave their arms in the haze of the past, to accept legal benefits in exchange for peace, in exchange for the definitive non-repetition of violence, and to work as owners of a prosperous but legal economy that puts an end to the backwardness of the regions. It is time for a new international convention that accepts that the war on drugs has completely failed, that it has killed a million Latin Americans, many of them Colombians, during the last 40 years, and that it leaves 70,000 North Americans dead by overdose each year from drugs that are not produced in Latin America. The war on drugs strengthened mafias and weakened states. That was Colombian President Gustavo Petro addressing Colombia during his inauguration in Bogota yesterday. The day before, on Saturday, indigenous leaders from throughout Colombia held a symbolic inauguration for Petro and Vice President Francia Marquez Mina in Bogota. Marquez is a prominent land and water defender, winner of the 2018 Goldman Environmental Prize, who helped organize the women of the community of La Toma in Colombia's Pacific uh, Southwest region of Cauca to stop illegal gold mining on their ancestral land. Despite threats from multinational corporations and paramilitaries, she continued to fight back in defense of the earth. Marquez Mina is also a lawyer and a former housekeeper. This is Francia Marquez speaking at the indigenous-led ceremony Saturday. Brothers and sisters, here I am with you, ready to hold your hands to walk alongside this government tenure, which will not be easy, because we must say, here in Colombia, we have the most dangerous elite in the region. Francia Marquez Mina, the first Afro-Colombian woman to serve as vice president in Colombia's history. 
Well, just after their election, but before the inauguration this weekend, I spoke to Simone Mejia, founding member of the Grammy award-winning Colombian band Bomba Estéreo, about a new project that centers the resistance, experiences and traditions of Afro-Colombians, people who've long faced violence and repression from right-wing governments and paramilitaries, drug traffickers and multinational corporations seeking to exploit sacred natural resources on the land. The project's called Bomba Estéreo Presents El Duende, uh, which means the elf or the goblin, uh, a musical journey on Colombia's Pacific coast. We began our conversation speaking about the significance of the election of Gustavo Petro, a former guerrilla member, and Colombia's and Frances and Francia Marquez Mina, the Afro-Colombian woman and environmentalist, as Colombia's vice president. Yeah, well, I think it's it's historical. It's historical for Colombia because you know that Colombia has been for for I, I would say for centuries, uh, right oriented uh, in terms of politics, and all the left candidates that we have in in recent history that were ca candidates for presidency were killed. So having this person that was from a very symbolic guerrilla here in Colombia that was called M19. Uh, uh, left orientated, uh, choosing him uh, as vice president, Francia Marquez, that is a social and environmental leader in a country where more environmental and social leaders are killed in the world, is really symbolic and and it's really it it brings hope, hope to the people, to the underrepresented people of the periphery of Colombia were the ones that voted for Gustavo Petro, the Afro communities, the indigenous communities, the campesinos, the, the farmers, the poor people around the country that have been undertaken for years and years. So it's it's a, a, a good time for change. There's hope in the air. Uh, we don't know what's going to happen, but the good thing is that there's hope in the air. And I, I feel when there's hope in the air, there's there's light at the end of the tunnel. So we'll see what happens. And, and people are really uh, uh, excited about this. And I, and I think that uh, regarding what's happening today in the world, that you see that everything is turning to the right, having Colombia and many other countries in Latin, in Latin America turning to a center, to a left, is very symbolic of of how this 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 Latin America a piece of the earth and Central America uh, might be uh, really important for the future of politics in the world, especially if we unite as a as one block, not just small countries, but one block protecting our environment and asking for things for the first world countries. Simone Mejia, I wanted to ask you about the film that you were featured in in 2020, um, Sonic Forest, which follows your journey uh, across the Colombian Pacific Coast, spending several weeks with Afro-Colombian and indigenous communities who've been on the front lines of the violence and the killing. Colombia, one of the most violent places, lethal places for environmentalists um, all over the planet. Um, can you talk about what you learned on that journey and what you want to convey to the world um, through your music and your research? 
Yes, that was a project that we made with an uh, NGO, a North American NGO, Environmental. It's a, it's a purely environmental film. And we did it with an organization that is called Stanford Trees. They do these projects all around the world, uh, um, uh, li linking uh, forest conservation with carbon credits. So we were invited by them to do the piece of Colombia that was meant that is is and happens in the Pacific rainforest in Colombia. Pacific rainforest is a forest almost as important as the Amazon jungle uh, for Colombia and for the world. It's one of the most biodiverse jungles in the world. It's full of water. It's impressive, full of water, but at the same time, it's one of the most conflicted places in Colombia because there's illegal and legal gold mining and there's there are roots of drug trafficking. I have to say that the drug trafficking is the, the main problem here in Colombia, not drug trafficking, but I, I think cocaine being illegal is the engine to the, all the deaths that we have in Mexico and in Colombia. So I will have to say also that anyone around the world who buys cocaine is carrying and carrying death here in Mexico and in Colombia. So if they don't legalize it, the problem will be forever and we'll have death and violence forever in the countries that are involved in this illegal business that should be legal. So this film, it wasn't, it wasn't about uh, drug trafficking. It was about projects of communitary projects in the Pacific Afro, one Afro and one indigenous that are protecting uh, thousands of millions and millions of hectares of forest uh, in, in exchange of carbon credits that how they, they finance, finance, do they work and do their work and, and protect this jungle. And the, the, the objective of the film was just to have a, 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 pair, a musician or an artist to go and, and, and show that to the world, no? how these communities are protecting forests that today are key to climate balance, key to climate change, and key to absorbing uh, all the carbon that is in the atmosphere. So we went there, and, we, and as I was a musician, we related it with music. So I was with the communities, we did like musical encounters, and in the middle of the musical encounters, we talk about the work they do for protecting this forest, the menaces that they have. And, and it was beautiful because it was uh, Afro and indigenous community, they, they live each one by their side, but it was knowing the process behind all this huge and really important work that they do uh, facing uh, real dangers because protecting forests here in Colombia is a dangerous task and being a, a social or environmental leader is really dangerous in Colombia because they kill them. They kill them. So uh, visualizing this is a way to show to the world the important, the thing that they do and how important it is and how important it is to protect these people as well founding member of the Grammy award-winning Colombian band Bomba Esteria. We spoke to him in Bogota. To see the full interview and hear his music, you can go to democracynow.org in both English and Spanish. 
Coming up, we go to CPAC. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. Stay with us. Nos quitaron el mar, nos quitaron el cielo, vendieron por nada, se nos acabó, nos quitaron el viento, quemaron la selva, vendieron la tierra, pagaron el sol. Se llevaron el agua, secaron los ríos, dejaron vacío los montes por carbón, soltaron las manos y estamos parados en medio del bosque viendo su extinción. and Simone Mejia. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. On Saturday, CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Conference, wrapped up in Dallas with a speech by former President Donald Trump, who outlined plans for Republicans if they take control of Congress after the midterm elections, like restoring, quote, public safety and repeating his call for the death penalty for drug dealers. This comes as several Republican candidates who supported Trump's lie that the 2020 presidential election was stolen won their races in recent primary elections. One of the booths at CPAC featured a mock jail cell with a man pretending to be a January 6 prisoner crying inside the cell as people stood on the other side of the bars listening to testimony from the January 6 hearings on headsets. The display was set up by right-wing influencer Brandon Strecka, who was convicted in January for his role in the January 6 insurrection. CPAC's opening day featured a speech by far-right Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban recently won re-election to a fourth term. He appeared after saying in a speech the week before that Europeans, quote, do not want to become peoples of mixed race. Orban spoke Thursday for more than half an hour, drew multiple standing ovations, perhaps the loudest when he was condemning same-sex families. He said a battle is being fought for a Western civilization. You have midterm elections this year, then presidential and congressional elections in 24, and we will have election in the European Parliament same year. These two locations will define the two fronts in the battle being fought for Western civilization. Today we hold neither of them, yet we need both. You have two years to get ready. On Thursday, just before Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban's address to CPAC in Texas, Democracy Now!'s Nermeen Sheikh and I spoke with Kim Lane Shepley, professor of sociology and international affairs at Princeton University, who specializes in the rise and fall of constitutional government focusing on Hungary. Today, we bring you part two of our discussion. Shepley began by talking about the significance of Orban addressing CPAC. CPAC is clearly going international, and I think a lot of that is because there's something that I call the illiberals international, right, which is that there are a lot of, of leaders who start as charismatic populists, who get themselves elected, and then who take this sharp autocratic turn by locking down power so people can't get rid of them. And it turns out that, um, that in many cases they're sharing the tools they use to stay in power. So since that started happening, and, and Orban, I think, has really modeled the genre, uh, because he got there first and because he's been packaging these little 
uh, developments for taking over the courts, you know, developing a compliant parliament, uh, shutting down all the independent think tanks, um, shutting down all the independent agencies of government, because he's been so successful at it and he keeps appearing to win elections, and for a long time people thought he was still a Democrat, including a Christian Democrat, um, all of that looks really enticing. So I think what CPAC has now realized is that there are models for how to do this around the world that they want to learn from. So they've been learning from Orban. They've gone to Brazil with Bolsonaro. They've gone to Israel, where Netanyahu has sort of, you know, been able to whip up nationalism into keeping himself in power for a long time and so on. So CPAC is definitely going international, and I think they're learning a lot of things. So let me, if I can give you one example of what I think CPAC has just recently learned or what the conservative movement in the U.S. has learned from Orban. When Orban first came to power, he distrusted the civil service because many people working in the government were not on his team, so to speak. So he used the excuse of an IMF austerity program, which Hungary was under, to say we need to fire a big chunk of the civil service. So they changed the law that nominally protects people who work in the civil service from political influence. They then fired thousands of people who were not associated with their political party. They then reinstated the law on the civil service. And then Orban increased the size of the civil service by, you know, by they doubled it from what it had been when he first came to power, except that all the new people were his people, right? So we've just seen, there was a, a scoop by Jonathan Swan at Axios a couple of weeks ago, that there are now these boot camps training young conservatives of Trumpist mode um, to immediately go into government as soon as a Republican is elected. And the idea is that they will transfer a lot of current civil servants onto this thing that Trump invented in his first term called Schedule F, which means you reclassify them and suddenly they don't have their job protections anymore. And then whoever the Republican president is will be able to fire large numbers of civil service employees while then hiring into regular civil service jobs that are protected all of their own people. So you see already Steve Bannon has been running these boot camps for young conservatives to go in and take over the government, not just through the political appointments, but through the civil service. And that was one of the things Orban pioneered, and now they're doing it here. So this is really, CPAC is now picking up all of these tricks from autocrats who have managed to install themselves in power forever while still appearing to the outside world. You know, the debate in the outside world is, is it still a democracy or not? The answer is no, it hasn't been since probably about 2012. But it's taken a very long time for analysts to catch up to it because it looks different than your 20th century dictatorships. Professor Shapley, I also wanted to ask you, as Orban addresses CPAC, and we are in the midst of these public hearings on the January 6th insurrection, about this uh, Christian nationalism, uh, which is increasingly a term that is used here, or white Christian nationalism. Um, it's how proximate it is, how close it is to uh, white supremacists. Also, I'm thinking of Catherine Stewart's book, The Power Worshippers, Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism. Can you talk about how all of this comes together? Yeah. So, in this regard, Hungary and the U.S. are actually quite different. So, 
Hungary is a, is a country in which something like 8% of the population attends religious services regularly. So it's just not a religious country. It's a kind of secular, cynical, individualistic society. Um, so that's why Orban's Christian democracy appeal strikes me as being primarily for outsiders. It's not really something that's whipping up you know, lots of religious groups in Hungary. On the other hand, what Orban's appeal does do is to whip up nationalism, Hungary against the against the EU, Hungary against, you know, its historic uh, enemies and so on, um, and to whip up racism, uh, which is a big part of Orban's appeal. You know, no black and brown people, no Muslim people, etc. So that is really an appeal. So the U.S. version is much more Christian-focused, although— you know, it looks to me like some of the groups that were behind the sort of muscle behind January 6th were not themselves Christian organizations. So it seems to me that these right wing movements actually have a number of different strands in them, some of which are the religious right that would be all in on banning abortion, for example, some of which would be all in it for, you know, um, the great replacement theory, right, which is that black and brown people shall not replace white people as governors of the states where white people have dominated. And some of it is this nationalism of our country first. We're sick of globalization. We're sick of, you know, being dependent, watching our jobs go to other countries and so on. So there's a mix of all of those strands in the U.S., and there's a mix of the anti-globalization strand and the white nationalism strand in Hungary. But the Christian democracy, despite Orban's rhetoric, is not the main thing going on there. Who is the base uh, for uh, supporting Orban in Hungary and then uh, the base here for Trump? What is the demographic that you've identified? Yeah, so Trump's uh, base and also Orban's base are, you know, sort of rural, less educated voters who feel— left behind by globalization. So it's the former working class, it's the former farmers who have found themselves, you know, in the wake of globalization with far less prosperous lives than they might have otherwise had. And so it's a kind of resentment against the against these global forces. It's also a resentment against this perception that in the city there are all of these educated people who look down on them and who would much prefer to mingle with company that doesn't look like them. So it's that same kind of basically rural, small town, small city, less well-educated, um, people who don't get out much, shall we say. So it's the people who don't have passports. It's the people who have never left the country. It's the people who don't speak languages. I mean, one thing that I think is, is important to understand about Hungary, which, which you can also say about the U.S., is that people don't speak languages. Um, there was a recent survey that showed that something like 12 percent of Hungarians can carry out a conversation in any other language besides Hungarian. And Hungarian isn't a big popular language, like even the neighboring countries don't speak it, right? And we have a bit this problem in the U.S. where we have lots of Americans who just don't know what's happening in the rest of the world because they don't have languages, they don't travel, they don't have passports. So it's that base, the base that thinks of home as everything, who thinks of their local communities as everything, that is supporting these kind of right-wing nationalists, in part because the right-wing nationalists are saying, we don't want those global forces either. We don't want those strange people coming in to our peaceful little communities, you know, peaceful little communities in the U.S. with guns. But nonetheless, so I think in that sense, the bases are very similar. 
And actually, when you look at these right-wing movements, you look at Bolsonaro in Brazil, you look at Modi in, um, in India, you know, you look at Erdogan in Turkey, that this is the base that all of them are drawing from. It's the rural, small-town, you know, um, group that doesn't ever leave their own countries, doesn't get out of their language bubbles, doesn't get out of their cultural bubbles, and that isn't very well educated. And that's what's propping up these leaders. I mean, isn't that also the case with Israel and the United States? Uh, The increasing support they have to turn to, not the young Jewish population in the United States, but the Christian nationalists is who they're most turning to for support in the United States right now. Exactly, exactly. And so, you know, the bond between evangelical Christian movement and Jewish nationalists, the sort of Zionists in Israel, is really one of those underreported stories. And, you know, as the as young people in the U.S. become move more and more to the left, um, Israel is finding that young Jews are not really their primary basis of support, the Netanyahu sort of nationalist, um, you know, group in Israel. So absolutely, this this is really a global trend. And, and I think this is one reason why CPAC is looking abroad, because I think they've realized that this is a global trend. Um, this is something where they can take advantage of the lessons learned from others about how to get power, you know, what kinds of campaigns work. Um, And, you know, and then also once they have power, how to keep it. And I think, you know, much as I'm—I mean, every time these culture war issues come up, I mean, I I also, you know, get pretty outraged by what they say just as a substantive matter. But I think we also need not to take our eye off the ball that what's going on underneath the surface is changes of laws that lock in power. And in many ways, you know, once you lose the ability— to change leaders through free and fair elections, you're really in a different world. And Hungary is a few steps ahead of the U.S. on that. Well, that's where I wanted to go next, is that issue of uh, you following uh, Hungary as increasingly authoritarian, and if you see the United States following suit. I mean, we just came out of a primary where one person after another who ran for office in the Republican primaries, from Arizona to Michigan, um, even those that are running for secretary of state who run the elections are election deniers. Exactly. Well, this is such a familiar playbook from Orban. So the, the reason why is that one thing, you know, Orban did as soon as he came to power was he captured the election rules and the election machinery so that it was his people counting the votes. It was his people in all the election commissions and it was his people in the courts. So what Orban has shown you is that if you can control writing the rules and then you can control the courts that hear disputes under those rules. It doesn't matter how people vote because your rules will overcome any popular vote. And that's, you know, Orban has engineered these super majorities in the Hungarian parliament from, you know, having less than a majority at home. And, you know, one thing Orban and Trump share is that in the polls, their base is about one third of the public. You know, one third, maybe it gets up to 40 percent when they're having a good day. But neither Trump nor Orban have ever had majority support. And so the question is, how do you go on winning elections if you don't have majority support? And the answer is, you fiddle with the rules. And if that doesn't work, you fiddle with the counts, right? You put your people in place. So 
Uh, and this is where, you know, frankly, the Democrats still think this is really all about turnout and voter suppression. Um, and, you know, that was true at one point, that that was how the Republicans played it. But the Republicans are playing a totally different game now in which you win or lose elections before anybody ever casts a vote because you've set up a system designed to produce a certain result, no matter what the votes say. That's how Orban wins. And that's what we're moving into. And I'm very afraid that CPAC and the Trump, you know, the Trump Republican Party is borrowing from Orban's playbook. And Professor Shepley, just before we end, how would you respond to those who say that there are many more checks on power in the U.S. and therefore it can never be quite as concentrated as it is in, in some of these countries, from uh, Brazil to Hungary to uh, uh, the other instances that you—other countries that you named? Well, that's actually not true anymore. So if you think about how you learn civics, right, the three branches and checks and balances and all of that, all of our checks, our constitutional checks, as well as our system of federalism, which is another kind of check, are supposed to—they uh, work because the officers in those branches— are defending the prerogatives of their branches, right? So the Senate is supposed to defend the prerogatives of the Senate. The judiciary is supposed to defend itself. Um, the states are supposed to resist, you know, incursions from the federal government. All that kind of—that's how checks and balances work. Well, all of that falls apart if people are putting party above their institutions, and once you have Republican control running through all of the branches and running down into the states, all those checks and balances disappear. You know, we're now seeing a Senate which has basically decided it will govern by blocking anything a Democratic president wants to do, even when it's in the interests of their members, right? That's something that the Senate wouldn't do if it were defending the Senate as opposed to defending the party. So essentially what's been happening now with the Republican Party is that it's disabled all these checks and balances. You know, we still teach students that, you know, checks and balances are what keeps our democracy afloat. And the fact is they've already been undermined. So we are a lot closer to dictatorship than I think anyone realizes. And that's because our Constitution is not working as function, as, as it was designed to function. And the thing that I must say really has me particularly freaked out in light of the Hungarian experience is that Orban very early on captured the top court in the system. And once the courts are going to come to bat for you and defend anything you do and not say that what you're doing is unconstitutional or where they completely rewrite what the Constitution means through their decisions, you're living with a captured court. And that really is something extremely hard to overcome. And unfortunately, in the U.S., we're already there. Kim Lane Shepley, professor of sociology and international affairs at Princeton University. We spoke to her Thursday, right before Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban addressed CPAC. You can see part one of our interview at democracynow.org. As we mentioned, one of the booths at CPAC featured a mock jail cell with a January 6th insurrectionist crying inside the cell as people stood on the other side of the bars listening to testimony from the January 6th hearings on headset. At one point, Republican Congressmember Marjorie Taylor Greene went into the cell, got on her knees to pray with the man wearing the orange jumpsuit, as some of the people surrounding the cell recited the Lord's Prayer, some crying, others throwing money inside.
And that does it for our show, Democracy Now!, produced with Renee Feltz, Mike Burke, Messiah Rhodes, Nermeen Sheikh, Maria Tarasena, Tarina Nadura, Sam Alcofte, Marie Astudio, John Hamilton, Robbie Karen, Honey Masood, Mary Conlon. Our executive director is Julie Crosby. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks so much for joining us.